Hello, welcome to Pride Academy. Today's hyperconnected world presents us with a dilemma. While it enables many of the benefits of modern living, it also leaves us vulnerable to unprecedented threats. These new risks, like pandemics and climate change, are actually fueled by globalisation and interconnectedness. The financial crisis demonstrated the potential for seemingly localised risk to spread, as the bursting of a housing bubble in the US triggered huge aftershocks all across the world. It also proved that in an age of globalisation and massive interconnectedness, we are all susceptible to these sorts of dangers. We know that this new type of threat cannot be tackled at a national or even regional level. They can only be dealt with effectively through global cooperation. Professor Ian Golden, former Vice President of the World Bank and current Director of the Oxford Martin School, argues that the current systems of global governance are incapable of dealing with the complexity and scale of these modern issues. His book, The Validations, exposes the shortcomings of the present models, as well as exploring some possible routes forwards. So Ian, you're currently director of the Oxford Martin School. Could you explain a little bit about the role of the school? So the Oxford Martin School brings together, at the moment, well over 300 leading academics from across Oxford University to tackle some of the toughest questions facing the world by working in new ways in interdisciplinary teams to be problem-focused as opposed to discipline-focused. We have four key criteria for how we accept people. We only work on the biggest issues facing the world. We only want to employ the best people. Uh, We want there to be a transmission between their academic research and problem solving. So impact is important. And we only want people that couldn't be doing this unless they were in the school. So the additionality of value added is important. Um, If they could be doing this work on their own or in discipline-based teams or with other funding agencies, they don't come to us. So we're very experimental. We have about 35 teams at the moment, varying in size from about five people to over 50 people. And we hope that by bringing these extraordinary people together in fresh ways, uh, that we'll be able to make progress on some of the biggest intractable issues uh, which face the planet, from the frontiers of medicine, like neuroscience and cancer, to the tough issues in energy and the environment, climate change, new forms of energy, biodiversity and so on, to the big mega trends uh, that are going to possibly overwhelm society, demographic trends, uh, migration trends, other sorts of big issues of that nature, economic questions. And then also through everything, thinking about the ethics and the philosophical underpinnings of what we do. So our biggest single group is actually philosophers, our second biggest group is physicists. Moving on to the divided nations itself, you just mentioned the funder of the school, James Martin, described humanity as at a crossroads in the sense that the 21st century could be our greatest or our worst. And that seems to be the central theme of the book, so could you explain that a bit? Yes, well, James Martin, who's an extraordinary visionary, created the school. He gave the initial funding to Oxford University to build the school. And it is indeed that view that this could be our best or our worst century ever uh, because we have the means to overcome poverty, disease and many other afflictions of humanity for time immemorial. But we also have increasing number of ways in which we could destroy the planet and our futures. 
and that the difference will depend on our ability to mobilize ideas in new ways and transmit them into policy, as well as business practices. Across the school, whether it's people working on climate change and biodiversity, or people working on economics and finance, people working on pandemics, across the school, there's a sense that we actually have a pretty good sense of what needs to be done to make the world a better place for everyone. Uh, the problem is the politics at the national and the global level are incapable of implementing. It's both about the increasing short-termism of politicians and the political system, where people can't make tough decisions, but it's also about the increasing fragmentation of the world. So as the issues have become more global and we've become more global as a citizenry over the world, walls have come down. Uh, there's over 7 billion people now hyper-connected. Uh, nations are more fragmented and divided than ever. And the institutions which are meant to be governing the planet and tackling these tough issues, like the United Nations, like the World Bank and the IMF, the World Trade Organization, the many, many other institutions are totally unfit for 21st century purpose. They are not capable. And it's both because they don't have the skill set and resources, but more importantly, it's because they don't have the mandate uh, or legitimacy required that nations have to give them. All of these organizations can only be as good as the nations that control them, that are their governing bodies. So we see in the case of Syria, the complete impasse, as we saw in Kosovo and Rwanda, the inability of countries to do the right thing collectively. We see this in the collapse of the fisheries. We see this in so many ways every day. And what the book is about is trying to think this through. It's called Divided Nations for obvious reasons. Nations are divided, and it's also in a sense a pun on the concept of United Nations. But it's not only looking at why the existing system doesn't work, it's trying to think and imagine how it may work and how we may get beyond this terrible state we're in. So if there's one thing that keeps me awake at night, it is this problem of divided nations, this problem that there's no one at, there, at the wheel, as it were, of the world. There's no management of the planet, but we are a very fragile, very integrated place. Uh, and we need collective management if we're to navigate the perfect storm of the coming years, perfect storm on resources, on climate, on demographics, on finance, on population, on many, many different dimensions. And there's a sense of a completely rudderless ship where we're all in our little cabins in the ship doing our own thing, thinking that somehow our own thing is going to steer the ship, but actually we're heading for a big iceberg. And the fiddling that's going on in terms of these organizations and shareholding and votes on power plays over leadership are like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So the book is trying to raise awareness of the need and it's also trying to look at the things that do work at the global level, some of the organizations that do work, some of the non-government systems that work, the Facebook communities, other communities that can mobilize, asking whether these can provide leadership, uh, thinking about how the world has changed and how these institutions and leadership needs to change. And the purpose really is not to provide all the answers that would both be presumptuous of me but also impossible because it's a tough, tough thing, but it's trying to raise a whole series of questions and point to possible answers 
because I feel it's so important. And you identify five specific threats in the book, migration, cybercrime, pandemics, financial crises, and climate change. Could you explore one example a bit more, say pandemics? So I, I do provide those five examples and I don't do that because I believe they're the most important or because I believe they're exhaustive. I provide them because I believe they're illustrative of the sorts of issues that need to be managed collectively where any one nation managing an issue is unable to uh, resolve this issue. These have to be dealt with on a collective basis. And when you think about these issues, you see feeble attempts by governments, not least the UK government, to deal with these issues on migration, on cyber, on climate and others. But it will never work because all of these threats come from a much more broader issue. If they indeed threat some of them are opportunities like migration. It, it requires being joined up. So I use them as illustrative. Pandemics and finance are one type of example where there are already very strong global institutions. In the case of finance, it's by far the most joined up and well endowed of the global institutional structures. That's why it's particularly important that we understand the financial crisis, because actually finance is the best global governance system there is. Its leaders are an elite, a global elite, that know each other. Its leaders have the res all the resources they, they require, they have all the data they require, and actually within countries like the Treasury and Bank of England in the UK or the Federal Reserve and Treasury in the US are the most powerful institutions in government. So we need to worry a lot when they don't understand what's going on and when they're incapable of resolving it. WHO is also a pretty joined up system through the World Health Organization and other organizations. Some of the other instances I cite, like migration, cyber and climate, are orphans of the system. There's no institutional capability. There's the International Panel on Climate Change that has no executive power at all. And on cyber, there's no international institution. And the same is true of migration. There's, there is an international organization of migration, but it's not a UN organization. Many key countries are not members, and it has no executive power. So these are different examples which aim to illustrate different sorts of issues. In pandemics, like in finance, uh, one of the critical questions is the ability of governments to keep pace with technological change. Uh, one of the prime causes, but certainly not the only cause of the financial crisis, was the development of new instruments, in the case of finance, credit derivatives and, and other instruments, and then joined upness, a new complexity in the system, which comes out of the hyperconnectivity and also the facilitation of computing power and the internet and that sort of joined upness which was simply not understood by the management at all. And there's lots of evidence on that. So there's a sort of disconnect between the rapid evolution, the people that manage these new technologies, which is often very young people in the trading rooms, etc., and the management, which is the old, generally men, who are on the risk committees and audit committees of the banks and things, and a complete disconnect as to what's happening. It's not even asked the right questions, let alone form the regulatory response, and that's what we saw in the financial crisis. And the other thing that happened in, in finance is the academic practice, in this case economists, were captured. So economics became too narrowly disciplined, it lost its perspective, 
and therefore reinforced all the biases of the leadership in finance to exacerbate the financial crisis. In pandemics, there's also very rapid threats arising from technological change, which are not absorbed by the system and the regulatory structures. And there are two that I could perhaps just highlight briefly. The one is new hyperconnectivity. So the airport structure and transport structure, which is of course a very good thing in many ways, has become a vector for new risk. And really what we've mapped through our pandemics group in Oxford is that pandemics starting anywhere in the world can be in the whole world in 48 hours. And we've also correlated the spread of the swine flu from Mexico with airline traffic around the world. And that's exact, absolutely exact correlation with big hubs like Heathrow and others acting as the super spreaders of new systemic risk, just like the big hubs like Lehman Brothers led to the super spreading of financial risk. So that's one thing, is hyperconnectivity has led to completely new structure. The second is that technological change in DNA synthesizing and exponentially declining price to sequence new biopathogens creates a whole new world of risk in the creation of synthetic or man-recreated pandemics, which is extremely worrying. This is also related to another failure of the global commons, which is antibiotic resistance. So we into a world where, where small groups of individuals could create pandemics for um, bad, bad, bad reasons, whatever they may be. This requires a very different way of managing both the super spreading of pandemics and uh, the capability of individuals or small groups to, to manufacture pandemics, as well as, of course, increased population numbers and increased population density compounds the risk. So, so we need a much, much stronger surveillance system. The technologies exist through mobile phone technologies, others. All our phones could be biosensors, for example. We could have global SWAT teams that isolate these at source and, and prevent them spreading. But that sort of capability is not in place. So in, in finance, as in pandemics, the technologies both provide the source of new risk, but also new solutions. Okay, I want to talk about the failure of the current global governance institutions to deal with some of these global crises you were talking about. Some people with the current situation and the stalemate in the UN about taking action on Syria, some people would say that that stalemate demonstrates the impotence of the UN. Would you agree with that view at all or do you think people's expectations are too high? No, I agree with that. If you read the Charter of the United Nations we the people, it's the most beautiful document, an aspiration of global collective understanding of the potential and desire to manage collectively the world. And the UN came out of you know, the tragedy of the Second World War with a vow not to let that happen again, as did the Bretton Woods institutions. So the aspiration is there. The problem is the implementation, the capacity to act. And I don't think Anyone can believe that what's happening in Syria or what happened in Rwanda or Kosovo and many other tragedies around the world, what's happening to the migrants dying by their tens, if not hundreds, by the day trying to cross the Mediterranean and other places, is anything but a blot on our common humanity. The problem is that governments do not allow the solutions because of a number of reasons which I point to in the book. The one is big, powerful com countries prefer to bully and get things their own way and don't really see benefit in international organizations except when they need them rather than 
being part of a rules-based system. Weak countries need international rules more than big countries because they can't get their way and they need a level playing field. This is true in trade as well. The problem is that even the biggest countries now realize that there are times when they can't get their way because, and this is one of the healthy things that's happening in the world, even the big countries aren't that big in terms of the world economy anymore. Uh, and they realize all the things they need others for. It's also the case that you might not need a global institution on one issue, but you need it on another. So you might not need it on trade, but then you want it if you want to invade Iraq or something. So there's a trade-off. I see this a bit like football. In football, Manchester United or the top teams play by exactly the same rules as the teams uh, in the bottom divisions. And when you get an FA Cup, if Wayne Rooney or someone is red-carded, they can't say, well, I'm, I'm the top player, I'm going to have different rules, I'm going to stay on the field. As soon as that sort of thing happened, the whole thing would collapse. You wouldn't have the game anymore. But that's what happens in, in international governance. The big players basically seem to think that they don't have to follow the rules of the game uh, when they don't like them. And that is why the system doesn't work and they can't be held to account. So we need rules-based systems, but we need everyone to play by the same sets of rules. That requires countries at times doing things they don't want to do. It requires citizens in those countries giving their governments the power to not only make these global institutions powerful, but sometimes to actually make decisions that might not be the decisions that they would have made at the national level on occasion. And that's the whole game of cooperation. At times, you don't get your way. And it's that trade-off. And big countries don't accept that, and politicians often don't accept that, because they like to use these external agencies as a source of problem, but not as a source of solution to their problems. They want to take all the credit when things go well and blame outsiders when things go badly. What's at risk here is globalization. We're more connected. We require more connection. We require systems of connection. But if there's no connected management, things will fall apart. So we might well find ourselves in a very deglobalized world in the future, as xenophobia, protectionism, nationalism, and other threats to the structure, be it the cyber structure, or be it other structures, start falling apart. Then we'll be back to a very bad world. You mentioned the big players there, and I think it's fair to say since their formation that Bretton Woods institutions and the UN have been largely dominated by the G7. There seems to be a shift in global power. So what do you think the emergence of nations like India and China and Brazil, what do you think their emergence will mean for global governance? I think in the medium term it's a very good thing. It's something that will create a much healthier global balance of power uh, where no one country or a small cluster of countries, particularly from one particular area of the world, uh, can dominate. And there will be a power structure which much more reflects the world population. We don't have like 10% of the world's population, 20% of the world's population setting rules for the rest, but it will be much more dispersed. The majority of people will be represented in these global power structures, and that will also be very healthy. The problem is getting there. The next 10, 20 years are going to be a period of perfect storm in carbon dioxide emissions, in other systemic risks. As incomes rise, which is a great, uh, you know, arises out of the success of globalization, 
one and a half to two billion people becoming broadly defined middle class. That's good, they're escaping poverty. At the same time, their demand for energy, for transport, for heating, for cooling, for cooking, for computing, for everything else is going to soar. And with it, the demands on land, on water, uh, on natural resources, the pressure on biodiversity, the oceans, etc. And then there's also the new hyper-connectivity with pandemics and finance and all the other risks are high. That, that's all happening over the next 20 years or so. I think the big issue is going to be how long is it going to take to transition power. And what I'm seeing is while the old G7 are totally unfit for purpose, they don't have the capability, not even sure they have the interest in global management anymore. They've got huge problems at home, be it in Europe or the US or Japan. There's very little bandwidth politically to take on global problem solving, not least of the sort of medium long term sort of challenge, what people perceive to be medium long term challenge. There's also no money, uh, there's no resources. We all bankrupt. Even if you want to take on global challenges, you can't allocate money to it, and civil servants are being cut at the national and local level. So there's no appetite for various reasons in the old G7 for global problem solving. And some of them, like the US, have also been bloodied by attempts at it. At the same time, I'm not seeing yet a readiness on the part of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, or other emerging markets to take over leadership. And that's both the way they explain it is both because they've also got their problems at home, poverty reduction, very rapid transition, etc., and also because the old are not ready to give up. So there's sort of paranoia in the US particularly about, say, China's role in the world. And rather than welcoming it, they're very scared of it. So there's this lag of maybe 20, 30 years between economic weight in the world and political weight. And we see that Asia is already half of the world economy. Emerging markets are going to be 80% of the world economy by 2050. But the political power structure still reflects the world of the 1960s in terms of economic balance and political balance. So there's this massive lag in political leadership at the world level. And that's a major problem. So we're in a power vacuum. We're in this terrible transition period where there's going to be a handover. We can see it coming. There's going to be a different structure in the future, but at the moment, there's nothing. And there's no leadership. And this is very, very dangerous, particularly because this is this period when humanity is at the crossroads. It is the period when there's an absolute vital need. We're peaking our demand on collective resources over the next 10, 20 years. And we're peaking at a time when there's no collective leadership. So this is the big, big, big disconnect that I highlight in the book. One chapter in the book is based on the increased potential for the individual and more specifically the potential for an individual's acts to have to have wide scale consequences. You mentioned before the capacity for that to happen in a negative sense in the case of manufacturing pandemics. Could you go into examples of a potential positive change that could come from this? Yes, and you're absolutely right to highlight both the positives and, and the negatives because both are there. There's immense change that individuals have created for positive force in, in the world. You know, I'm really fortunate that I've worked with, I believe, the, the best of all these individuals, which was um, Nelson Mandela, and his role in the transformation of South Africa. And as a 
demonstration of what leadership can do in the world, I think, is unsurpassed in the last decades. And that's sort of a demonstration of political power. But there's also other examples. I, I was very struck recently by what started as a very small, not necessarily individual, but small group of individuals campaign in the U.S., to raise awareness as to some of the threats to open access to the internet, the SOPA and PIPA debates in the U.S., leading to mass mobilization, I think, of, of uh, over 60 million people online, which then mobilized into the Senate and led to the stopping of this legislation. It raises very big questions, of course, as to where what's democratic process? Is it something that goes through, in that case, the whole Congress system and everything? through the U.S. democracy process, or is mass online protest that leads to the changing of a law, a legitimate democratic alternative? And that's, I think, something that society is going to have to think through in the years to come, because you can get also herding and crowding around things which can under subvert democracy. But I think we, we have seen that power. We've seen it in the Arab Spring as well, where very small groups of individuals initially created cascading protests virtually and then physically, which have led to fundamental changes which were unimaginable only a couple of years ago. So the pace of change and the power of individuals uh, to mobilize around this and do it, I think, is extremely evident. It's important not to be naive about these things. The Internet and these new tools can also be used for repression, and the Iranian police used the Facebook collective pages and other pages to round up people. But how one uses these, how one spreads ideas, is a very, very exciting prospect. And it's something that we're just at the beginning of. If people spend some tiny fraction of the time that they spend on video games and watching TV, on collective mobilization and engagement, uh, the world would be a much better place. You know, in the book, that the EU is currently held as the best example of countries ceding power to a higher authority. Recently we've heard from many heads of state that tighter integration or more Europe is the answer to the Euro crisis, and that's despite its decreasing popularity among its citizens. Would you say that the politicians' commitment to the Euro project is a cause for hope in that it goes against short-termism and populism, or do you think that it shows they're increasingly out of touch with their electorates? I think it's a great source of hope. Europe is, a, is an extraordinary example. It's the only real big example I know of in you know, the post-war period where, you, where countries have voluntarily given up whole areas of sovereignty to a collective leadership uh, because they believe it's in their collective interests. I think it's certainly served one purpose so far, which is to stop another war in Europe. And I think that's stable and sustainable. <laughs> in the end, war is the most important thing to stop. Um, biggest threat to us all. I think it's also, despite you know the recent uh, real crisis, uh, led to much better life for most Europeans than would have been the case without it, certainly for the southern Europeans. So what happened in Europe was a failure to follow the rules. It's like the example that I've cited earlier on football, with the big players ignoring it. The Maastricht Treaty is very clear about debt and deficits. It has very clear guidelines, which were signed 20 years ago. If they'd been followed, we wouldn't have had a euro crisis. Now, the, the first countries to break the Maastricht Treaty were the prime movers for it, were Germany and France. 
And then when the other, when they broke it, the Southern Europeans said, well, you know, that's obviously the way we play this game. Uh, we'll just play by the new rules, which is build up your debt, raise your deficit, and nothing happens. It's like football. If you have a bad ref that doesn't stop things happening, you very quickly learn the new rules. It's fine to, to do an unfair tackle. You just, everyone will do it. But like in football, where you all end up terribly injured and uh, you'll break your legs, the same thing happens in Europe. The countries broke their legs. The only problem was that the bullies were bigger, and so they survive and go on. But if you look at the, the macro imbalances in France or Germany, that, that's what started the problem. Now they're recommitting to a fiscal pact. There's a strong statements that this time will be different. They are creating a, a European police force to inspect the data, check it's accurate, and hopefully they will go through with implementation of strict censures to stop countries going out of line. But as in all cases, and in our own lives, you know, you've got to walk the talk if you set rules, uh, particularly the big ones, the big bullies, have to walk the talk uh, that are setting the rules, uh, the strongest countries, and that's the big test. I believe Europe should succeed, I believe it will succeed, but the leadership has to come from the strongest countries in ensuring that they follow the rules, and then, of course, the whole of Europe makes, needs to make sure that they follow the rules strictly. If you don't follow fiscal rules, you'll end, end up in fiscal crisis. Do you think there's a chance that some of the issues we've talked about, for example, the euro crisis and the wider financial crisis, but also inaction on climate change, I think these, these sort of things will bring about a lot of frustration and scepticism in citizens about global governance. Do you think this frustration would possibly in inhibit the sort of reform in global governance that you'd like to see? I think people are very sceptical about global governance. I think they're actually justified in their scepticism. The system is unfit for 21st century purpose and there are too many meetings where too much is agreed and not enough happens following them. So we just see people flying off to meetings and it's basically having photo opportunities and in sunny places. And you know we don't like our tax money going to that. We don't like our politicians wasting their time on that. So that's understandable. Now I think we forget two things. One is that there is actually a lot of good that has happened in the past and, and the second is that we vote for these politicians and we mandate them to do these things. I don't believe the solution is less global cooperation, which is what you see in politics, you see it in the rise of parties in the UK that want to pull Britain out of Europe, you know, in Scotland people want to leave Britain, they want to bring power home. That's understandable. You want to be able to see your politicians in the eyeball. You don't want them in some distant location, Brussels or somewhere. Even London's too far for the Scottish. And then you feel that you can see what they're doing and control them more, go and see them and vote them in and out when they don't do things you like. That's very understandable. What we, what, what we don't realise when we make those decisions is actually all the important things that will affect our future will be decided outside our borders. They'll be decided in Brussels, they'll be decided in Washington, they'll be decided in Beijing or somewhere else. That's what's going to affect our future. And if we don't get in there and actively engage and try and shape those global rules or the, the measures that will stop the next financial crisis or stop the next pandemic or stop climate change, then we're going to have less, not more, control over our futures. So if we don't push hard for a global climate agreement, 
then the emerging markets will fill the planet even more and we're going to take a roast. If we don't push hard for more work on global financial coordination, give up some of our national regulation in favour of global rules, then we'll be overwhelmed by a crisis. And the same applies in all these areas. The fishermen in Scotland are going to find that there's no fish, not because they've been fishing too much, but because everyone else has also been, and so on, on all the dimensions. So while the, the desire to bring politics home and have local control is totally understandable, and I believe we should do everything as locally as possible, so I'm a very strong supporter, and the book is adamant about the need for a subsidiarity principle. Everything should be as low a level of government as possible. The fact is that on many critical things, only global will work. Now, this isn't to say that all global actors have to be present. And one of the strong things I'm arguing in the book is that we need to rethink global governance. The idea of getting 202 countries, and then more and more countries all the time, to agree something is a complete fantasy. And is wrong. And I don't think it's necessary. What's necessary is that a critical mass of actors who make a difference to that particular issue need to be part of it, either because they make a difference because they're the biggest polluters or culprits or because they're the biggest victims. And it's important to have both sides there, not just the, the ones that cause the problem. Well, they'll obviously agree amongst themselves to cause more of a problem. You need the, the other side, the victims there as well. But whether it's on climate change and you have, you know, the 20 countries that count for 95% of global emissions, plus a representative sample of those affected, like those that will be washed out in Bangladesh and Maldives, or starved in Africa. If they can come to an agreement, I'm happy to say that's fine. That represents a global view that I think should be a widening circle. So I think we use the failure of global agreement too often, or the inability to get all actors as an excuse not to move ahead. And I believe strongly that we need to form incremental coalitions of circles of agreement. So if the European Union and China can agree something on climate, we don't have to wait for the US there to be there, even though we know that the US is an extremely important player. And then we can work with consumer pressure and other pressure in the US to bring them to agreement. But I think we need to stop using the failure of these global negotiations as an excuse to do nothing. Some people would say, as a criticism to global negotiations and agreements that are made, there could be a democratic deficit in that procedure. Yeah. How would you respond to that criticism? Well, I think, you know, th- there's truth in it. But I think we, we're making democracy into some sort of a holy grail. You know, the best democracy is my household. But, but even there, my kids now tell me I'm wrong most of the time. Uh, and I listen to them. Then you go to, the, to Oxford, and then you go to you know, Oxfordshire, and then you go to the UK. You have circles of democracy, and you try and affect through the majority voting for something outcomes. That sort of works. But actually, when you realize that what really is going to shape the future of my life and my family's life isn't going to be decided here. Whether my kids survive the 21st century is not going to be decided in Oxford or even in the UK. It's going to be decided somewhere else. So we, we need to realize where are the big shapers and then engage in them and try and get democracy in those structures, the climate change negotiations and things. But democracy of what? Is it one vote per country and you want, the, you want China to have the same vote as the Maldives? You know, 1.3 billion people against whatever it is, 50,000 people. Is it the amount of pollution they're creating? Is it their economic wealth? 
how do you create a metric around what's right or ethical in these situations? And does democracy mean that the majority are always right? And is it the majority of countries or people? Democracy is used as a, and the democratic deficit is used as a slogan. I don't think it means very much unless one unpacks it, gives it clarity in terms of what you're thinking about. You've also got to think about money. One of the greatest prices of inequality, growing inequality in the world, is that the wealthier people are controlling democracies more and more. Is the US a democracy healthy? when you have a tiny fraction of people with armies of tens of thousands of lobbyists with tens of billions of dollars shaping the rules and paying for campaigns for congressmen, etc. Is that, you know, is that democracy and the power of the coal industry in the U.S. lobbying process reflecting the democratic rights of the U.S. citizens on energy policy? So I, I think we need to unpack this democracy claim and the democratic deficit claim very aggressively and, and ask ourselves what it does and where, what we mean by it and put democracy into the framework of getting decisions that will determine our future. In the end, there's only a point in being a democracy if we're alive. And if we have the means or as much sense empowered to act as citizens. And I think that's the question we should be asking. There are many ideas circulating about how to reform global governance, some of which you go into in your book. Which of these ideas would you say you have would put most faith in? One of the reasons the global governance system is not resolved is because it's very difficult to resolve it. I mean, if it was simple, I'm sure it would have been done. So, you know, the, the first idea that I have great faith in is, that, is, is my idea that we need to raise this in political consciousness, in people, citizens' consciousness, and that we need to realize that it's all about the global now. The local and global are colliding. And we need to realize, as local, we concern people wherever we are in the world, that unless we grab this global and get a handle on it and think about it more and empower politicians to, uh, and vote for politicians that engage with it more effectively, we'll have no local. Okay, so that's the first point. And I think that that's the ideas point of the book. The second idea, which I think is powerful, is this idea that we shouldn't use the failure of global institutions as an excuse not to act globally. We can act as citizens, as individual citizens, in the choice of what fish we eat, in what cars we drive, or whatever it is, and we, and we can act collectively because we joined up. The internet and our Facebook communities and our circles of friends and knowledge knows no borders. And yet we completely, when it comes down to decision-making, captured by this really, really out-of-date sort of structure. Now, we have the power to transcend that uh, in different ways. I'm not saying give up, but operate on multiple dimensions, have multiple identities, some of which are local, some of which are national, some of which are global, some of which might be based on other things, hobbies, sports, etc. So we need to manage that multiple identity much more effectively in a political sense. The third point, I think, and this relates to that, is this idea of the circles of, of success or of effectiveness. I, don't, I believe that we need to start structuring things uh, in new ways. A fourth point, I think, is related to uh, looking at things that work, uh, whether it's international air traffic control or others that have moved very rapidly with political transformation 
and technological change, rules-based system, professional networks. A global corporation has absolutely no difficulty in operating across time zones, cultures, borders, different rules and regulations to come to common outputs and agreements. But governments are sort of 50 years behind, if, if they're lucky. So what is it that we can learn from all these other systems that exist, professional networks, called private business, etc., to make it work? What is it that in, in non-government organizations, like transparency organizations, like other organizations, can bring to this? In the end, I believe it will be governments, because that's the only, in the end, rules-based structure in a society that can enforce norms and standards and rules and has capacity to execute and to, to punish a deviation from agreed standards. So I don't believe that we're going to be getting away from governments. But I believe there's lots of complementarities and other structures that can be used. And those are some of the things I point to in the book. On that note, I'd like to say, Ian Golden, thank you for taking part in this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you.